We continue our series. We're up to our second from the Psalms series. And um, it's interesting. The Messianic Psalms are quoted in 11 of the New Testament books. And all up, there are 26 of the Psalms of the 150 that will have Messianic prophecies as part of those Psalms. So the Psalms call Jesus the King of the Jews, the only begotten Son, describes him being eternal, creator of all things. Now, many people would like to leave Jesus just as a moral teacher or as a moral crusader. But the Bible is very clear to us. It says that Jesus is the Son of God. And recently I've been researching the first eight uh, centuries of church history. I've been listening to a, um, a theological college lectures on church history one. And it's interesting, one of the key issues that came out for the first 800 years of the Christian faith was to make sure that you got the wording of the Trinity correct. And I'm just going to give you a, a quote from two of those creeds. The first is the Nicene Creed. And I'm just taking the part that says about Jesus. It says, Believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit. Now it's interesting, as we go through the many Psalms, we'll find massive amount of fulfilment by Jesus. And it gives us a very clear understanding of why these creeds were written in such a clear, powerful way. Now one of the other creeds is called the Athanasius Creed. Now uh, if you're an Anglican, you'd say it once a year. It's one of their uh, services. And it starts with these words as a preface. It says, Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the universal faith Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtlessly perish eternally. It was seen as a salvation issue. And I've just gone through the Athanasian Squid. It's very uh, laborious to read it. And I've just picked out the key highlights of what does it say about Jesus. It says the Son is uncreated. The Son is immeasurable. The Son is eternal. The Son is almighty. The Son is God. The Son is Lord. As we turn now to the Psalms, we see it takes up a lot of these type of themes that we had in the creeds to describe Jesus. And so for this second in our series, my heading for it would be concerning the Messiah's nature and his name. Now the first thing we find in the Psalms is the Messiah, the Christ, is called the King of the Jews. So you go to the second Psalm, Psalm 2 verse 6. I've set my King on Zion, my holy hill. You think, well, what's Zion? Zion refers to Mount Zion. And it's another way that people would say Jerusalem. And it's on this mountain that uh, was once a Jebusite fortress that was conquered by King David. It was there that Solomon, his uh, son, built the temple. And it's adjacent to Mount Moriah. And nearby is the Mount of Olives. All three of those are mentioned often in the Bible. Now, if you're a very conservative, observant Jew, for the last 2,000 years, you would pray three times a day. The first thing you do is you'd work out where Jerusalem was and you'd pray towards Jerusalem. And you'd pray not just to Jerusalem, you'd pray towards the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And the first part of your prayer would be you'd pray for the rebuilding of the Temple. So Orthodox Jews throughout the world today are still praying for the temple to be rebuilt after 2,000 years. You then pray for the restoring of the temple church services or the worship services. You would pray for the redemption of the whole world and for the coming of the Messiah. 
Now, Mount Zion was considered the very place where God dwelt. So if you were Jewish, you'd say, where does God live? You'd say, he lives in the temple. The temple's at Mount Zion, and Mount Zion is in Jerusalem. We go back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18. The Lord of hosts will dwell on Mount Zion, the place where he is king. In other words, Mount Zion is the seat of authority and of action with God throughout the whole of history. Now we go to the week before Jesus dies upon the cross, to what is we call Palm Sunday. And there in John chapter 12, verse 12, it says, A large crowd heard that Jesus was coming. So they took branches of the palm trees and they went out to meet him and they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, if you were in Jerusalem at that time, you say, well, King of Israel is Herod. Everybody knows that. He says, no. Jesus is the Messianic King predicted from the Old Testament, predicted from the Psalms. So which Psalm would they look at? Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. If we turn back to Matthew 22, verse 41, Jesus asked the Pharisees, who do you think the Christ is? Whose son is he? And they quickly replied to him, he's the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies at your feet. Then David calls him Lord. How can he be David's son? So Jesus is doing a play on words, saying, I am a far greater authority because I was here before the creation of the world. Yes, I'm in the line of David as a human, but as God, I'm eternal. The second point it brings out in the Psalms is that the Christ or the Messiah, Jesus, would be called the Son of God. Now, if you were Jewish, you might call people sons of God in the plural, but the idea of one person being the Son of God, that was not part of their thinking. But going back to that Psalm 2 that we looked at before, verse 7, the Lord said, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. So Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. So where does that idea come up in the New Testament? Luke 1, 31, which is a, a Christmas reading. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of God. And the Lord God will give him the name, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of, of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. We go back to the beginning of Jesus' ministry with his baptism there in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Jesus was baptised and the whole heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and come to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now Hebrews looks at a number of aspects of the Jewish faith. And in his first chapter, in verse 5, it says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son? 
today I've begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to my son. Again, when he brings the firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So we see very strongly, Jesus is God's one and only, only begotten son. Now the Messiah was something that the Jewish people looked forward to, but they would have seen him as being a great hero. But the Bible says, yes, the Messiah is a great hero, but he's far more than that. He is my own son. He's the Messiah. And he is God on earth in a human body. So there's a Psalm 45 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. So it talks very clearly and directly to you and I that God is the one who rules all life. And in Psalm 45, which is quoted in Hebrews 1 verse 8 and 9, but the Son says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, it's interesting, when we turn to Hebrews 2, it gives us insight in this passage in Hebrews 1, because originally Hebrews 1, when it quotes from us the, the, the Psalms there, the quote was actually about God the Father. But the writer of Hebrews says, yes, you thought this was about God the Father, but this is actually a quote about his son Jesus. And as it gets us to reflect on the Psalms, it says this to us in Hebrews 2 verse 2. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and even every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by the gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. So what's the writer of Hebrews saying? God has spoken. And the words he spoke to us in the Old Testament were really taken on to be the words of Jesus in the New. Because Jesus is equal to his Father. So the third point is the Messiah will call God his own personal Father. So if you go to um, Psalm 89, it says, He shall cry, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And that idea or theme is taken up in Matthew 11:27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself. It talks about the intimacy of a relationship between the Father and the Son. They are like one in their bond. Now the fourth thing the Psalms bring out to us is the Messiah will be called God's only begotten Son. So going back to Psalm 89 again, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. And this whole theme is taken up in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, if you go back to the Old Testament, the idea of firstborn was normally the first adult male child in the family. And uh, that adult uh, child is normally given a double blessing of inheritance. They would inherit their father's role as being head of the house. Now, as interesting as we go through Genesis, God often reverses this order. 
as he did between Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 25. And then Jacob later did the same with Ephraim and Manasseh in Genesis 48. So the second meaning of uh, this idea of, uh, uh, refers to the right or the authority of a person because they are firstborn. It's a position of priority. It is one who points by God and God gives the authority of the position. So the firstborn can either mean the first child born in a family or the person of highest authority. So we call Jesus firstborn. It's not because he's the first eldest child of God, but he's the one of authority from God. And this is taken up for us in Colossians 1.18. And it describes Jesus as he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, and the one of highest priority from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. See, firstborn means priority in time and superiority in authority. Now, Israel is God's firstborn among the nations. In other words, God's most chosen nation. And what's about Jesus says this in Colossians 1.16, All things were created through him and for him. The fifth thing the Psalms pick up is the idea that God will send his Son who is eternal. Now, technically, you and I aren't eternal. You and I will become everlasting. In other words, we have a starting point, but because of God, he allows us to live from that moment on into eternity. Therefore, we are everlasting. Jesus, however, is eternal. There is no beginning. There is no end. There is no point in history where God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were not together. They have always been one. So what does it mean for God to be eternal? Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, that you change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. I'm intrigued by the Aboriginal's concept of uh, creation. Like we think in terms of land ownership, where if you're an Aboriginal, you say, no, the land owns us. I am born, I live, I die, I disappear. But that mountain is there. That mountain was there 10 generations ago, 100 generations, 1,000 generations ago. And it'll be there in 1,000 generations' time. The land stays, but we just pass through as visitors. How much more is it that not the earth stays, but God himself stays eternally from both ends. So about Jesus says this in Revelation 1.8. It says, I am the A to Z. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. It's interesting, this concept is taken up for us in Hebrews 1.10. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning and the heavens of the work of your hands, but they will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The sixth aspect that the Psalms bring out for us is the Messiah is the creator of all things. So there again in Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, that you will change like a robe, and they will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. We go to the very beginning of John's Gospel. What does John say about Jesus? John 1 verse 3. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, 
was not anything made that was made. Now in uh, Ephesians 3.9 it says, um, God created all things. And then in Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. A thousand years before the birth of Christ, psalm writers were writing and predicting that Jesus would come. They go into great details. matter of fact, if you put all the things about the psalms about Jesus, you could nearly create a complete gospel about what it says about him. It describes Jesus as the king of the Jews. He's the son of God. He will call God his father. He's the only begotten son. That like God, he is eternal. He is Lord. He is creator. And God is in control. And as we go through these Psalms, we think for a thousand years, those predictions hung there and found their fulfillment in the day that Jesus came. If God can know what's going to happen in a thousand years, why not 10,000 years? If God knows the future and the past so well, does he know what's not going to happen in your life? Now, sometimes as a Christian, I think, wouldn't it be nice if our life was fluffy and we just had like soft pillows and uh, we just floated through life? And then you think, well, is that the life that Jesus had? Did he not suffer upon the cross? Did he not get crucified? Was he not beaten? Did he not thirst? Did he not hunger? Did he not tire? Yet he was the Son of God and without sin. If God allowed those things to happen to Jesus, why not allow those things to happen to us? But as God allowed Jesus to live on earth, both in the good and the bad, he never left Jesus. The same as that he never leaves you or I. That God is with us forever. That our life, we have no idea what the future holds, but God does know the future. He knows both the hardships we will face, but he also knows the presence of the Holy Spirit that he will give us in those times. We can hold firmly the fact that God sent Jesus as his son to die for the forgiveness of our sins. That all who trust in Jesus will be saved, not based on their own merits, but based on God's mercy and his mercy alone. The Psalms are very, very powerful as we go through these. We've got another three more weeks of this. And we'll see that week after week, the Psalms will take up parts of Jesus' life and remind us of his lordship. And the lordship is there in our life today. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father God, we thank you that our confidence is not in ourselves, but in you. We know that if we examine our life, there are many areas that we fall short and that we fail. And you come to us and call us your children. You have the confidence to know that we have salvation. And you know the beginning from the end. God, we have no idea what tomorrow holds, but you do. And into your hands we give you everything. Father, teach us to be your children. Give us a passion to hunger for holiness and a desire to love and serve you always. Amen.